Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I am a clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Brian Anderson, but... Before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes really helps others find out about chiropractic science. So, if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. Here is a review I received on the Chiropractic Science website from Robert Moore. He says, I've been in practice over a decade, and I wish I would have discovered this podcast and website earlier. As an evidence-based practitioner, this is an amazing resource. One major point of why I enjoy the presenter and guests so much is they talk about chiropractic research from a non-biased perspective. Well, thank you, Dr. Moore, for listening and sharing your feedback. If you'd like to leave an audio review that I might include on a future episode, I haven't done one of those, but I'd love to. Uh, just connect on Facebook or send me an email. Please consider making a contribution to Chiropractic Science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website by making a donation. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Brian Anderson. Dr. Brian Anderson, DC, MPH, MS, PhD, is an assistant professor within the Palmer Center for Chiropractic Research at the Palmer College of Chiropractic, where his research is focused on evaluation of non-pharmacological spine care delivery in the U.S. His background includes 15 years of clinical experience as a licensed chiropractic physician in a variety of settings, including private practice, a hospital-based integrative medicine center, and a chiropractic academic teaching clinic. He has also been an educator for the past 15 years, teaching courses at the undergraduate, graduate, and postgraduate level. With a passion to better understand and contribute to conservative swine care research, he enrolled in a PhD program in health sciences in 2015 with a focus on health services research. His dissertation was titled A Secondary Analysis of Insurance Claims Data to Determine the Association Between Provider Type and Treatment Escalation in musculoskeletal disorders, which is a topic he continues to investigate currently. After graduating with his PhD in 2019, he joined the faculty at the Palmer Center for Chiropractic Research, where he has participated in a pilot clinical study as a treating clinician, developed relationships with several research collaborators, and made progress towards developing his own research program. Dr. Anderson's research has been presented at many academic conferences for which he has received several best paper awards. He is currently a co-investigator and primary analyst analyst, uh, on a R15 grant titled Spinal Manipulative Therapy versus Prescription Drug Therapy for Care of Aged Medicare Beneficiaries with Neck Pain. He was recently awarded a two-year loan repayment award through the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health and also participated in the fall 2022 cohort of the U.S. Bone and Joint Young Investigators Initiative. Dr. Anderson, thanks so much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. It's my pleasure, Dean. Uh, I've been a fan and avid listener of your podcast from the beginning, and it's really an honor to join you today. 
Well, that's great. I appreciate you listening. And uh, so we've got a busy schedule, I think, uh, for for this conversation. So let's just dive in. And uh, my first question, as you know, then is tell us how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor. Yeah. So uh, many of your guests and many people in chiropractic are drawn to the field after having some personal experience with chiropractic treatment that they might've benefited from, or maybe having a chiropractor in the family who exposed them to the field at a young age. And I really had none of these experiences. Um, my high school had a, an excellent health careers course, and we were able to leave school for half a day and spend some time shadowing different hospital departments. And we sat in on ambulance rides we had guest speakers come in and talk about different healthcare careers. And my high school happened to be about 30 minutes away from, from National in Lombard. And one of our trips was to the uh, anatomy lab at, at National, uh, which was quite an eye-opening experience for, for a high school kid. Uh, and this was really my first exposure to chiropractic or um you know, anything to do with chiropractors. So, you know, my plan going into college as an undergrad was to become a physician assistant. And, you know, I spent a quite, quite a bit of time shadowing uh, PAs and different settings. And, you know, after some time, I, I realized this was, wasn't a good fit for me. And I needed to kind of evaluate what other opportunities there were in healthcare. I knew that my future was in healthcare, but um, not quite sure what field was uh, best. So just kind of as a side note, and in hindsight, I believe that um, I had a kind of an influential experience as, as a child with our family physician. Uh, his name was Gregory White. And he practiced what I would consider holistic medicine really from the very beginning of his career in the 1960s. So I, I later found out that he was one of the founding members of the La Leche League, and he promoted natural childbirth and allowed fathers in the delivery room before this was really common practice. So I think that somehow influenced my interest in kind of holistic medicine from a young age. So back to my path to chiropractic, um, my senior year of college, I started investigating different healthcare related career paths and chiropractic was one of them. So I spent a day visiting the campus at uh, National in Lombard and it was a student for a day event. And uh, at that time they were transitioning their curriculum to uh, what was called problem-based learning. And during this tour, we got to sit in on a simulated small group problem-based learning case discussion. And this was just completely fascinating to me, uh, how they went about the process of working through a case um, with one of the faculty members kind of uh, observing and asking questions. And yeah, I was completely fascinated by this learning style. And I, I, I think if I remember back to that day, I, I probably applied to National uh, before leaving. 
Um, and this was without ever actually being exposed to chiropractic treatment as a patient. So, you know, this changed uh, after I applied and I, I eventually found a local chiropractor and got to know the profession. Um, and I ended up starting the program in um, 2001. So that's, that's kind of how I got to chiropractic school. Brian, that's great. Uh, yeah, we, we definitely all have a different path getting into chiropractic. And most definitely, we have a different path getting into research. Uh, so I wonder if you could tell us about your uh, career as a chiropractor in practice. Uh, you got into teaching as well. And then how you uh, got into research and the PhD program. I realize this could could take a little while and that's good. Uh, so take, take as much time as you need uh, to go right. through that. Yeah. So I've had quite uh, a unique career path uh, after graduating from national in 2004. So uh, I opened a private practice in a, a large suburban city, West of Chicago, uh, which was at that time and, and continues to be, uh, quite saturated with healthcare practitioners and uh, particularly chiropractors. This is a, a city that is quite health conscious and has a, a kind of a higher than average mean household income, I would say. So I felt that was a good location to start my career. So um, I, I started the solo practice, did, did all of the behind the scenes work and scheduled patients and treated patients and did accounting and did basically everything a small business owner does. Uh, and in the beginning, in the first few years, um, in the meantime, shortly after I graduated, um, one of my mentors at national, um, and you, you may remember, uh, Dan Richardson, Dean, uh, he, he taught, pretty much all of the pharmacology and uh, nutrition courses while we were there as students. And he was, you know, getting a little bit older and, and kind of moving towards retirement. And he was looking to decrease his teaching load a little bit. So he asked me to uh, teach one of the intro nutrition courses in the chiropractic program. And this would have been in, in late 2005. So, I had no teaching experience, but I had a passion for uh, nutrition. I did a certified clinical nutritionist uh, program at the later phases of my chiropractic degree. And I did a lot of functional medicine and, and nutritional work in my private practice. So I took that opportunity and, and found out I really enjoyed teaching. I was drawn to it and I seemed to have a good rapport with the students. I was, I was a Know, probably one of the youngest faculty members there, um, adjunct at the time. So this led to kind of increasing opportunities for teaching different uh, in different programs. National had just started uh, their master's degree in acupuncture at that time, and there was a whole series of courses in basic sciences that they had no faculty to teach. So they asked me to start teaching a few of these courses, and th that very quickly expanded to pretty much a full teaching load at the same time as, you know, trying to run a private practice 
Um, and around 2006, we had our first daughter, um, not around. We did have our first daughter in 2006. And I was at that time a primary faculty for two nutrition courses. And I was teaching three or four other courses most semesters. So I had, you know, between five and six courses I was teaching. And I was trying to, you know, balance the uh, all of the activities that are associated with running a practice. And I, I had a massage therapist at that point, and I had a couple of independent contractors. So, uh, you know, practice was doing well. Teaching was going very well. I was kind of at a point, uh, a fork in the road, so to speak, where I had to choose a path. I, I couldn't continue doing both full-time, basically, while also making time for our kind of new and growing family. So time management was was really becoming an issue. Um, so in addition to all of those things I was doing, I decided that would be a good time to start uh, a master's degree in public health. <laughs> yeah, around, yeah uh, why, 2006. why not just add another thing to the list? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get it. it. it you know... I, I, I wasn't thinking very clearly at that point, and I'm sure my <laughs> wife was was not on board with any of this, but um, she's just been incredibly supportive. She She's a teacher, and um, she supported us financially through my chiropractic program. And, um, you know, I kept convincing her that, okay, this is going to be my last de- degree program, I promise. And um, that turned out not to be the case at all. But uh, so in 2006, I, I started the MPH, um, and this was before there was much online uh, learning. A lot of the MPH programs now are at least partially or fully online, so I actually had to go uh, and sit in class uh, quite a few nights a week um, in, in addition to doing all the teaching and running a practice. So there came a point around 2008, when I finished my my MPH, that I had to really decide how to move forward. And the decision I made at that point was to sell my practice to to one of my independent contractors. So I did that and um, just continued teaching pretty much full-time. I didn't have a full faculty appointment. I was still an adjunct at national at that point, but I had a full teaching load. Um, an opportunity came available just kind of by happenstance. It is one of those situations where um, it was a friend of a friend type of situation. And there was a, an opportunity to, to, to work in a integrated medicine center at Northwestern hospital which is now called the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. Um, at the time that I joined, it was called the Center for Integrative Health, I believe. Um, anyways, it was owned and operated by Northwestern Hospital, and it was in downtown Chicago. And I, I uh, after a very lengthy interview process, uh, I was hired for that position in, in early 2009. And uh, this uh, was around the time when um, we were starting to think about 
you know, growing our family, having another child, which happened in 2010. Um, and Living in the Chicago suburbs and commuting into Chicago was a real struggle. Again, time management-wise, um, I was also I also continued to teach one to two courses at National after I took this position at uh, the Osher Center. Um, so I was commuting round trip about three hours a day um, to to my job downtown. Uh, we had our second daughter. I was continuing to teach, burning the candle at both ends. And, you know, my wife being, um, you know, very, very supportive up until this point. She was, you know, basically trying to raise two young kids uh, with me being gone pretty much all day, uh, every day. So I was at that point looking for other opportunities. And in 2011, I had the opportunity to go back and join the faculty at National as a supervising clinician and work uh, in the clinic there, uh, supervising interns during their, their chiropractic uh, internship during the last year. And a bonus uh, opportunity that came along with that job was to work alongside the clinician that supervised me during my internship. So shout out to Terry Ranke. If you're hopefully uh, will listen to this at some point. Hey, Brian, Terry, yeah. Terry was my clinician as well. She's oh awesome. That's, that's, she's awesome. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. She's, she's been there forever and I think has had some impact on most, uh, you know, interns who've gone through that program. So that's great. Um, so anyways, I continue to keep in touch with her to this day, but I got to work there alongside her from um, 2011 to 2019, really. Um, but kind of going back to, to the timeline here. So after I joined the faculty, uh, I continued teaching classroom and online courses in addition to my clinic duties. Um, National started a kind of a unique master's degree program at that point. It was called a Master's of Science in Advanced Clinical Practice. And this was a, obviously a chiropractic-specific academic program that was one weekend a month for two years. And each weekend was, um, you know, targeted a particular specialty or uh, topic within chiropractic practice and we had you know the top researchers and practitioners in each of those uh, fields and each of those specialties come and teach the weekends and it was really an excellent experience so um, that was my second master's degree after uh, graduating national um, so at the end of that program we actually had to complete uh, a, a case report um, and that was really kind of a unique um, change. It was kind of a career changing experience for me because I, I had previous to that never published anything and um, read a lot of research, you know, for when you, when you teach, you, you end up having to read a lot of research. So you stay up on, on what's new and exciting in the field. But that was the first time I actually had to sit down and write 
from beginning to end uh, a case report, which which was um, you know a, a great experience for me. And I ended up writing a few more case reports along the way at my time at National. And uh, for most of them, I included interns, uh, you know, who were involved in treating these unique patients that we wrote up. So uh, pretty much this whole time, after I finished the master's in advanced clinical practice in 2014, I was um, searching high and low for a PhD program that would allow me to continue working. I wasn't in a position financially uh, to quit my job and go off and do a PhD program full-time. Um, I had already mentioned my supportive wife several times. Uh, this was a, a too much to ask from her. So, um, you know, I, I kind of just waited and, and hoped that I would find something that would fit uh, my schedule and allow me to, you know, fulfill a kind of a, a lifelong or a career-long uh, dream of, of finishing a PhD program. And this opportunity came along in 2015. I was actually the first cohort of students in this health sciences PhD program at uh, Northern Illinois University, which was designed specifically for mid-career healthcare professionals. And um, it allowed us to work, continue to work. We did, you know, intensive sessions at the beginning of every semester. And then we did live classes every week um, online. So synchronous. And um, it was, you know, a great experience. It was, it was a much different uh, PhD experience than I think most people have when they're, you know, full time and can dedicate their, their entire effort to, to a PhD. Um, but it, it did allow me to uh, continue working and gain a lot of really practical knowledge on research methodologies and, uh, you know, eventually ended, ended up writing a, a dissertation um, in graduated in 2019. And th at that point, um, I was looking to kind of transition out of the, the position I was in as a, as a clinician and use all of these new skills that I developed at, in the PhD program to, to start contributing uh, as, as a researcher to, to the field of chiropractic. So that kind of brings us to, to 2019 after my PhD uh, graduation. So um, I'll stop talking and, and let you jump in. Yeah. So all of that is fascinating. I, I think, um, you know, a lot of the people that listen to the podcast are, are, are students as well as docs in the field. So I'm excited that they're going to get all this information to give them sort of, uh, you know, a roadmap, at least, you know, what you went through. And so hearing from, from multiple people on the podcast, for example, just how they got into a PhD program, how they got interested in, you know, subsequently uh, working in the field in research, I think is just uh, super fascinating. So yeah. uh, I appreciate you going through that because uh, the the details matter. And um, and so anyways, I, I think people are really going to enjoy uh, listening to that. So, but I do want to ask you, uh, so now we're up to uh, your, your, 
PhD graduation, you join uh, the Palmer Center for Chiropractic Research. So at this point, maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, some of your grant writing experience. I know that's something that uh, that you want to talk about, as well as um, yeah. just being an early career researcher and, and possibly some other uh, mentoring opportunities that have come about. Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, when I when I took this position at at Palmer, um, it's a fully funded position. So, it, you know, we are not dependent on grant. Uh, money necessarily, but it is expected that people who are full-time researchers do uh, write grants and apply for grant money to offset their their salaries um, because we, you know, most full-time faculty members at universities are paid through their teaching efforts, right? And I don't have any teaching requirements and I don't have any clinic requirements. So my job is 100% focused on research. Um, so one of the, the first projects that I was involved with when I started here was a, a pilot clinical trial um, that Dr. Rob Vining had started, uh, which was called uh, thoracolumbar fascia mobility and um, this was this was really a fascinating project, and I was a clinician on this project. We treated patients um, twice a week for eight weeks and um, used diagnostic ultrasound to look at the mobility of the thoracolumbar fascia at various points throughout the study. Um, so I won't talk much more about that study, but I will send you a LinkedIn to a paper that was recently published, and you can put that in the show notes if other people are interested in reading about it. Great. Um, yeah. So I, I, at the same time, started kind of developing my own research program, which was a continuation, really, of the work that I did in my dissertation. So uh, my dissertation was... Uh, evaluating uh, healthcare utilization in patients with back and neck or musculoskeletal-related diagnoses and what impact different provider types had on um, utilization of, of various healthcare services. So that uh, interest kind of continued uh, as I joined the faculty here, and I started kind of trying to pull papers out of my dissertation, individual papers, and, and started writing, um, you know, based on, on the dissertation project. So the first paper that I, that I wrote up and published is one that we'll talk about here in a few minutes related to cervical spine diagnoses and patients who receive spinal manipulation versus other types of care and how that influenced exposure to uh, escalated care or treatment escalation. Uh, so I published a few papers on that topic, and I, I developed some really uh, critical and, and fruitful relationships with, with different researchers just, again, by being um, curious about what they were doing and reaching out to them, asking questions about their research, and that ended up with uh, a couple of co-authorships on papers that uh, we'll also be discussing here in a few minutes. So um, that, that was 
you know, a, a very crucial turning point for me is is starting to develop these these mentoring opportunities with more experienced researchers. And um, you know, one of the the main grant uh, mechanisms that that are associated with early career researchers is the K series, and these are all what are called mentor patient oriented or they don't necessarily require patient care, um, patient-oriented career development awards. So I applied in my uh, first year here to the K-23 award, uh, which is, you know, it requires the development of a, a, a mentorship team and a training program. So we, we came up with a, a series of, of courses that I would take to kind of fill some gaps in my knowledge on specific techniques. And we have this mentorship team that kind of would guide me along the way. And the, the project was uh, a kind of a unique one where, where I was interested in looking at patients who visit the emergency department for low back pain as their initial point of entry meaning they, they, had, they have had no prior experience with the healthcare system for back pain. And their first ever visit for back pain-related uh, complaint was in the ER. So I wanted to see, number one, what happened, uh, what kind of care did they receive within the ER? And then I wanted to follow them for a year and see what types of uh, care they received over time um, based on that kind of unique initial uh, care exposure in the ER. And we would use a large uh, nationally representative insurance claims data set to accomplish this. So this, uh, this was a six-month process to write this grant. And we submitted it, and basically you wait. You wait uh, nine months for it to get reviewed. And um, unfortunately, it didn't get funded uh, which is the case for most grant awards, right? For most uh, grant applications. Um, I think if, if you look at overall um, NA, all NIH funding mechanisms, the success rate is you know somewhere around 15 to 20% of um, applicants get funded. So I didn't expect necessarily to get funded my first try, but it was really a great learning experience to, to write this grant. And uh, you know, we decided that uh, there were there were a lot of um, methods and and kind of modifications that we needed to make to that application. So we put that on hold as far as a resubmission um, because I at that point I got an opportunity just based on again developing these collaborative relationships along the way to be a co-investigator on an R15 uh, grant mechanism. So an R15 is kind of unique because it requires the uh, involvement of student researchers. So R15s generally are only awarded to uh, institutions that, that don't have a lot of NIH funding. So they're, they're usually smaller private institutions and um, uh, Palmer actually had an R15 a few years back when uh, when I first started. And uh, my co-investigator on this application is uh, 
Dr. James Whedon at uh, Southern California University. And we proposed to look at uh, spinal manipulative therapy uh, versus prescription drug therapy in the care of uh, aged Medicare beneficiaries with neck pain. So uh, we submitted this grant uh, again quite a long time ago. Um, it was looking good, it got scored very well, and we ended up getting um, notification just a few months ago that it was awarded. So that was very exciting. Awesome, and, awesome. Uh, yeah. So, th so this is a collaborative grant. So it's a two, uh, the, the primary investigator, Jim Whedon is at Southern California. So him and his team are gonna have two students working with them. And then uh, we have a team of researchers here at Palmer, led by myself, and we're going to have uh, a few students working with us here as well. So this is a very unique opportunity to have um, this this distance, uh, you know, geographically distanced um, collaboration on a, a large grant project like this, and. I'm very excited to get this started. We've, we're now in the planning phase, and we're, we're planning really to, to kick this off as far as uh, data analysis starting in January. So we have uh, a lot of the program kind of developed already, and we're starting to you know, have regular meetings. So that was funded, uh, and that's a two-year award. So um, I am... Uh, 20, um, I'm funded a 20% effort on that award, which means that 20% uh, of my oh, if I if my full effort is 100%, and I get, you know I have a full-time research position, this grant pays for 20% of my effort. So um, it's not a full-time uh, coverage, but um, it's it's a good starting point for a first grant award. And I get to also work on other projects at the same time. So uh, simultaneous to kind of this R15 and K23 applications, I applied for an NIH loan repayment award. And um, so this award is uh, requires that you do have a, a substantial amount of your, your effort dedicated to research. And um, it offers uh, a certain amount of money per year uh, that the, the NIH will pay off uh, for your student loans. And it's a two-year award, and it, it is renewable. So um, I applied for that quite a while back and found out a few months ago again that, that I was awarded that um, the, the NIH the Loan Repayment Award, which is uh, congrats. very exciting. Yeah, very exciting um, because, you know, I, I, I directly benefit um, financially from this award. The, the money doesn't go to me, but it goes, it essentially goes in my pocket because it would have been money that I would have been paying towards my loans. So um, the NIH pays the, the uh, loans directly. They also pay the taxes that would be associated with uh, having an award like this. Um, and I decided because this is such an important program and more people need to know about it, 
that um, I, I signed up to be a loan repayment program ambassador, which means that um, I kind of act as a liaison for um, people like me who apply to this program uh, to, to provide information and experience and best practices on, on how to develop one of these applications and how to, you know, be successful uh, or, or improve your, your chances of success. So if I mentioned earlier that most of these NIH awards, the success rate is around 15 to 20%. The, uh, the loan repayment program is closer to 40 or 50% success rate. If you qualify, right, that's, that's the, um, that's the catch is you, you do have to qualify based on the type of position you have and uh, which, which does require a certain amount of effort towards research. So um, the, the last um, kind of opportunity here that I'll discuss in that realm is the U.S. Bone and Joint Young Investigators Initiative. So this is a program that has been ongoing for, for decades, really since, since 2000. Uh, this used to be called the U- U.S. Bone and Joint Decade, so some, some might recognize that name. And in 2000, they transitioned to uh, the U.S. Bone and Joint Initiative. Um, and they have uh, now a Young Investigators Initiative where uh, you, you apply and they accept you know, a small percentage of those applicants, and they have these workshops where uh, you you come and get mentorship and you get education on best practices for writing grants. That's really what they're focused on, is getting young investigators successfully funded uh, to do research that is important to them. So um, I I was accepted in this program and I attended the first workshop uh, last month, actually. It was um, in Chicago. And it was a, a tremendous experience. You get connected with two mentors that, that have kind of research interests that are along the lines of, of mine. And uh, they, they provide kind of one-on-one mentorship in addition to the larger group. And um, there is a, a follow-up workshop when you have, once you have developed kind of a, a what you consider to be a, a complete grant application and prior to submitting it, uh, you, you go to the follow-up session and you have it, you have this, this grant application completely um, reviewed. Uh, they have mock review panels there, just like they would in NIH study sections. And uh, they critique it and they help you make it better to improve the likelihood that you're going to successfully get funded. So this is, this is a great opportunity, uh, excuse me, for uh, people who, who are in early stages of their career to, to get mentorship specifically on, on grant writing. Uh, so, yeah, I think it, that's a, a pretty good summary of of all of the different types of, of grants that I've um, kind of looked into and, and uh, applied for and the different mentorship opportunities. So um, 
Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, send it back to you, Dean, and, and see where you want to go from there. Yeah. Uh, so like I say, I, I think um, this will be sort of a compendium for uh, people who are interested in uh, pursuing the PhD and then ultimately, you know, uh, knowing what to do in terms of grant writing, et cetera, uh, afterwards. A lot of, lot of good nuggets there for, for listeners who are interested in, in doing this kind of work for sure. So I really appreciate you going through that. Um, I do want to talk about uh, these uh, papers that you have published. I think yeah. they're they're fascinating papers. Um, so why don't we get started uh, with them? And the the first one, and you'd mentioned this uh, already, is uh, called "Risk of Treatment Escalation in Recipients Versus Non-Recipients of Spinal Manipulation for Musculoskeletal Cervical Spine Disorders and Analysis of Insurance Claims." And this is uh, this was published in JMP in two thousand twenty one. So I wonder if you could just uh, uh, tell us about that study, and then uh, maybe I'll ask you a, a question or two about it after. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So this is one of the first papers that I pulled out of my dissertation. Um, and so the purpose, really, of this study was to evaluate the relationship between treatment escalation and spinal manipulation in a cohort of patients with uh, cervical spine diagnoses. So there's no real standardized definition of treatment escalation in the musculoskeletal realm. Uh, it's used in a lot of other aspects of healthcare. But in this paper, we define treatment escalation uh, as interventions, uh, the presence of interventions such as imaging, injection procedures, emergency room visits, or surgical procedures. Um, so we, we used a large insurance claims data set from, from a single uh, Fortune 500 company. And again, we wanted to evaluate um, what, happened, what happens when patients with neck pain are either exposed or not exposed to spinal manipulation. And how does that impact their downstream exposure to all of these uh, escalated care procedures. So we used some regression modeling to look at that, uh, that kind of association. And we, you know, you, you account for a, a number of other covariates, um, sex and age and risk score and uh, a variety of other variables. So um, the bottom line here is that in patients with neck pain who are who receive spinal manipulation um, versus who don't have a much lower risk of escalated spine care. So we actually, in the model, um, we we evaluated those those uh, patients who did not receive spinal manipulation. So we found that the risk of treatment escalation was 2.38 times higher in those patients who were non-recipients of spinal manipulation, meaning they, they received any care other than spinal manipulation for neck pain. Um, so uh, when we say that they had a 2.38 times higher risk of treatment escalation, that includes exposure to any of those interventions that I mentioned earlier, imaging, injection, ER, surgery, 
So we evaluated each of those interventions individually and then as a group. So the, um, the 2.38 um, relative risk is related to them, all of those interventions grouped together. So um, that was, uh, you know, I think a very important finding, uh, you know, related to the protective effect that uh, spinal manipulation has against treatment escalation. Yeah, I, I think that's really fascinating stuff. Uh, I mean, I get the sense of, you know, just being a, a chiropractor in practice that that's what seems to happen in practice. Um, but it's nice to see research uh, being done by yourself um, looking at this. So I, I think it's super practical from not only a, a, an individual person's practice, but but also, and more importantly, uh, the entire system, I think. And, uh, you know, we may not be able to apply this uh, across countrywide necessarily, but uh, I think the results are super intriguing. Um, I did, I did want to ask you something um, now that you're going through it. Um, you mentioned the 2.38 times higher uh, estimated risk. Was there one, and, and, and I guess I didn't look closely enough in the paper, but there was, was there one that was um, particularly like highest or were they all kind of yeah. clustered around that 2.38? Yes. So the, the, the escalated intervention that was associated with the highest relative risk was emergency department. So those patients who were in the non uh, SMT group had uh, nearly a 17 times higher relative risk of having an ER visit for neck pain than the uh, SMT group. Wow. So that's that's, that's quite huge. Strange, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I've thought about that a lot. And, and there's other papers that actually uh, contradict that finding and, and find that, you know, uh, chiropractic patients are more likely to, to have ER visits uh, for, for whatever diagnosis they're being treated for. But I found consistently in the, at least in the, the data set that I'm using, that uh, spinal manipulation is very much protective against patients going to the ER for whatever diagnosis they're being treated for uh, by the chiropractor. And, you know, one thought on that is patients generally go to the ER because they're scared that something is very much wrong with them, right? Right. Like they, they have maybe a fracture or an infection or they have cancer or like this can't just be back pain or neck pain because it, the pain is just too much. So what chiropractors do a really good job with is um, a thorough evaluation and spending time um, educating patients on what are these red flags that we're looking for and the fact that a, a great majority of patients don't have any of them, right? Mm -hmm. And we, we, it's basically reassurance that, that we do a really good job with. And we do that well at the initial visit, but we also see patients relatively frequently. And there's kind of this constant reassurance that um, assuming we're doing our job correctly, 
and you know evaluating patients appropriately that we can rule out all of these reasons why patients would go to the ER in the first place. And we can educate patients about um, you know conservative care is appropriate for a vast majority of patients. And there is nothing concerning here that would lead me to believe that you have any uh, urgent need to be evaluated in the ER, right? Right. So patients who who visit other types of practitioners maybe don't get that same reassurance and education, and they're they're more likely to to go to the ER because they just don't know what's happening, and they're afraid, and they feel like uh, they need uh, immediate answers. And that's where you get them is in the ER. So, gotcha. Yeah, I wanted to ask uh, maybe a couple of other questions. So, um, your your paper didn't specifically look at the safety of chiropractic care, obviously uh, for neck pain. It was looking at the insurance data. Um, however, it is interesting um, that uh, the the data also show that it seems to. Uh, the people who have gone to a chiropractor, they seem to have a reduced exposure, we'll say, to some of these other things like injections that do carry higher risk. And so I, I wonder if you could just maybe talk about that, what what your thoughts on that might be. Yeah, so you're right that we, we can't insinuate um, or conclude any anything about the safety of chiropractic based on um insurance claims, but the fact that we can influence exposures to a lot of these invasive treatments, um, and in in this particular paper, um, we didn't look at opioids, but in, in other papers that I've published, we have looked at opioids, and, you know, there's a lot of risk factors associated with opioids as far as, you know, overdose and dependence. Um, but as far as, you know, safety of procedures themselves, uh, there, there are risks associated with surgery, significant risks and, um, you know, interventional procedures like injections. So, uh, you know, if we can keep patients away from those interventions when appropriate, right, there, there are situations when those interventions might be appropriate, but for the most part, um, patients do well with conservative care and the, the safety profile of chiropractic care is, um, you know, about as good as you can get when you compare it to all of these other escalated care interventions. Even if you're, you're considering something like imaging studies, there's lots of research looking at uh, early exposure to imaging studies has serious downstream consequences uh, regarding exposure to other types of interventions and prognosis, right? So um, I think the the more we can prevent these exposures, uh, we, we improve the safety profile of treatment uh, globally. Um, at least that's my interpretation of, of these results. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Ag- agreed. Um, so I'm here in Ohio. I'm pretty active in, uh, in our state association here. I'm just wondering, you know, what, what can a chiropractor in practice, um, 
do with this information? Um, just trying to think of, you know, sort of a yeah. knowledge gap thing. Um, obviously, I think the profession as a whole is trying to get this information out to legislators and, and whatnot. And I'm sure you've thought of these kind of things. I'm just curious to get what your opinion might be. Yeah. So, you know, I, I guess I, I, I don't have great advice for individual private practitioners. However, you know, uh, state associations are made up of private practitioners, right? And these associations have some influence on policymaking at, at the state and federal level. So, uh, you know, ultimately, the, the goal of the research that I'm doing is that we would like policymakers and payers to somehow incentivize providers that are practicing guideline concordant care and safe care and encourage insured members to initiate care with these types of providers, right? And so really what I envision as a, if we're talking big picture here is spine care pathways in every large healthcare system where we have a portal of entry provider that is a conservative practitioner right? Like a chiropractor or physical therapist, for example, and potentially having a medical doctor on staff for, for those cases that need it. Um, and, and this is really uh, practicing evidence-based spine care is um, based on, on the results that I'm seeing from, from our research. We want to initiate care uh, with conservative management, and uh, the, the types of practitioners that are most likely to provide evidence-based conservative management are chiropractors and, and physical therapists. So, um, you know, I'll talk more about, about this uh, issue when we, when we cover the, the papers on, on Medicare data, because I think I have more to say about Medicare specifically. But, um, you know, as far as, uh, you know, private insurance, um, we, we need to somehow ha have incentives for patients to seek care from conservative care practitioners and that these practitioners are somehow incentivized to, uh, when, when they keep patients out of unnecessary uh, escalated care situations. Yeah, perfect. I mean, it, it just makes total sense. Uh, yeah. For sure. Well, you mentioned the, uh, the the paper about Medicare, so let's dive into uh, let's dive into that. Uh, so the yeah. effect of the next paper, the effect of reduced access to chiropractic care on medical service use for spine conditions among older adults, also published in JMPT. I, I think it's the same issue actually as the other one. Um, yes. Okay. Great. That you was were, a good month. You me, were on yeah. fire. That's awesome. <laughs> So uh, let's go ahead and uh, if you could walk us through this paper. Sure. So I, this is one of those collaborations that happened by uh, just reaching out to to an author of a paper that I had a question about. And this is uh, Matt Davis and his group at University of Michigan. Uh, Matt's a DC PhD uh, health services researcher, and he had a uh, an R01, which is, you know, the the, the primary kind of uh, gold standard NIH research grant 
Um, and the goal of that R01 project was to look at patients, uh, Medicare patients, who uh, move geographically from one hospital region to another. And they evaluated the um, practitioner to population ratio of, of a variety of different practitioners. So chiropractors, um, primary care doctors, and surgeons. And they wanted to see what happened when Medicare patients move from a geographic area uh, or move to a geographic area that has a lower uh, availability of chiropractors. So what happens to their visits to other types of practitioners when essentially you decrease the availability of chiropractic care, right? So these are all Medicare patients who prior to moving had some exposure to chiropractic and then they moved and they had less availability of chiropractic. So uh, we wanted to see what happened to those patients, right? Did, do they continue to, to seek out chiropractic even though it's less available or do they transition to other types of care? And what we found is that um, for every time that a, that a Medicare patient moves to an area with a lower concentration of chiropractors, their rate of visits to primary care doctors increases um, by 32 visits uh, annually, and the number of spine surgeries increases by 5.5 annually. Um, so this is uh, this is per thousand Medicare um, insured, by the way, right? So 32 primary care visits per thousand Medicare insured, and 5.5 surgeries per thousand Medicare insured. When we lower the concentration of uh, chiropractic availability, and they looked at quintiles of availability um, based on you know practitioner to population ratios. So uh, the the results are quite striking here, and the costs are quite striking. So um, I think you had a question about the cost. So yeah, uh, maybe you, if you wanted to yeah, so that. yeah, for sure. So um, well, as I was going through it, I was just you know trying to ponder all these uh, numbers that were being extrapolated here from the sample to to Medicare as a whole, and. It sounds like uh, that this reduced access to chiropractic care would result in an additional 110 million visits to primary care physicians at an annual cost of 27 and a half million, and then an additional 19,000 additional spine surgeries at an annual cost of 364, uh, 363.4 million. Yes. Um, and th those are just astronomical numbers to me. Um, and so I was going to ask you how significant this was to, to you looking at this data all the time. But the, yeah. the other thing I wanted to just point out, and it, now it strikes me more clear than, than ever, kind of, you know, we're talk, having this conversation now. It strikes me that this is kind of similar to the previous paper, right? I mean, this is probably yeah. similar in your mind all the way along. But to me now, I'm just thinking, well, yeah, this is, you know maybe preventing some of these other risk factors that we just talked about, but here it's in a different population. Right. So there's, there's, a, I think this theme to um, all of the research that 
that I'm interested in doing, which is, you know, availability, exposure to chiropractic and the uh, healthcare utilization consequences of either, you know, exposure or non-exposure. So you're right. There's, there's a, you picked up on the theme. So <laughs> good job. Um, yeah. So that, that, the, the costs that you mentioned are obviously substantial, right? But, um, you know, in the intro section to this paper, we, we mentioned that um, Medicare currently spends uh, nearly $30 billion per year on back and neck pain, right? So um, the numbers that we're referring to here are, you know, 27 million, 30, 363 million. It seems like a drop in the bucket when we're when we're looking at big picture of 30 billion per year. But if you consider the year over year um, accumulation of these costs, um, you know, adding $400 million per year, uh, which is what we found, you know, based on these numbers, um, adding an additional 400 million per year to the already existing 30 billion per year, um, eventually is going to break Medicare, right? There, there's not an endless pool of money that Medicare has available. And spine care is actually one of their largest spending categories. So um, Medicare is doing everything they can to try to look at how they can cut costs um, for spine spending. And, and all, all of the results from, from you know, the, the, these studies, as, as well as, you know, many others in this area, suggest that, uh, you know, chiropractic uh, exposure is definitely a cost-saving measure, but um, there's, there continues to be resistance on the part of Medicare to um, make chiropractic fully available to, to, to its fullest scope. Um, and, and, you know, after we talk about the next study, I'll, I'll have more to say about that, but, um, yeah, it's, it's substantial and it's unsustainable and, um, something has to change in the Medicare system in order for, in order to, uh, intervene on this, these escalating costs. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about, uh, just stories that I've heard and, and some, uh, you know, previous patients, all the, you know, some, some people, they have a, they have a surgery, of course, uh, you know, let's say a minority of, I would just say at the outset of this, a minority of people will account for the vast majority of the costs, uh, to my understanding. So let's say you have somebody who has a surgery, Okay, well, perhaps that could have been avoided if they saw a chiropractor, just hypothetically. And that, that one person who's now had a surgery, maybe they have many other surgeries, you know, after the fact, uh, or they're taking a bunch of medications or injections that possibly could have been prevented by seeing a, 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 you know, a conservative spine care a provider yeah. like a chiropractor. So that's kind of where my headspace went when you were talking about, uh, you know, the ramifications. Exactly. And, and as, especially if we're talking about uh, older Medicare populations, you know, the, the majority of their diagnoses are related to degenerative conditions, right? And 
Um, surgeries, spine surgeries for degenerative conditions are particularly, um, have particularly poor outcomes. Uh, you know, the, the types of spine surgery that we think about that is successful in, in you know, maybe a mi uh, mi minority or um, moderate amount of cases is, you know, discogenic type of pain, um, you know, large disc herniations creating, uh, uh, you know, neuro neurologic compromise. And that's not the type of conditions we see in Medicare populations. So gotcha. anyways, I, I, I also wanted to ask you uh, about um, uh, opioids in this particular yeah. study. I think there was uh, a mention that opioid reduction wasn't uh, significant in, in this particular study. Uh, right. And I wanted to ask you, you know, given the many other studies, um, even those uh, by Dr. Whedon himself uh, yeah, have indicated right. uh, that uh, there there seems to be an opioid reduction with chiropractic care. So I just wondered if you could maybe mention or hypothesize why that was not yeah. the case. So just, I guess, just to clarify the, the methodology here in this study was to look at patients who... Um, the, the result of their their geographic move was a decreased availability of chiropractic care, right? So they had less exposure to chiropractic when they moved. So if anything, we would expect that the opioid medications would increase because they're not seeing chiropractic as frequently because geographically there are fewer uh, when they move to these new regions, right? Got it. So they're seeing they're seeing more primary care docs and more surgeons. So uh, if you look at the, the the table of results here, it it does indicate that after uh, after these patients move into a region where there are fewer chiropractors, the number of opioid prescriptions increases. But it is not. It it didn't turn out to be statistically significant. So, okay. Just to give you numbers here, um, before moving, uh, before these patients moved, the rate of opioid prescriptions was seven hundred sixty-six per thousand, and after they moved, it was one thousand one hundred twelve per thousand. So this is the uh, trend that I would expect to see when you have decreased access to chiropractic care, right? Got it. But, but um, that that association was not statistically significant. So that's why um, it it wasn't reported. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, I, I appreciate you uh, clearing that up. I just, you know, it yeah. was one of the things I caught and I, and I uh, you know, not, not being into into the uh, design like you are, I, I just sure. kind of uh, triggered a question for me. So I appreciate yeah. you going through that. Um, so let's let's talk about another paper: uh, the relationship between healthcare provider availability and uh, conservative versus non-conservative treatment for back pain. And this is also again uh, amongst older adults, uh, yes. older Americans. So if you could uh, uh, walk us through this study, that'd be great. Sure. So this is the same group and the same methods that we used in the previous paper that we just discussed. Same Got it. Got data, it. data set. Um, so instead of looking at uh, exposure to um, 
surgery and primary care doctors. Um, we looked at a group of services which are um, conservative and non-conservative in nature. So when patients move again from one geographic region to another uh, and they have either more or less ex uh, uh, opportunity to see different types of practitioners based on the practitioner to population ratio. Um, so the outcome of interest in, in, these, in this paper was the number of conservative uh, care episodes, which we defined as chiropractic, physical therapy, occupational therapy, or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs versus non-conservative, which we classified as imaging, opioids, or spine surgery. So the number of episodes um, that occurred in each of those categories when patients move from one region to another and the availability of the providers changes. So what we found was that uh, if you, uh, again, you geographically move and there is an increase in one spine surgeon in this new population, this led to 31 additional non-conservative episodes per thousand Medicare uh, individuals, which means, again, they 31 episodes that were managed uh, primarily using imaging opioids or spine surgery. So again, we have, like, basically we're talking about treatment escalation, right? So if we increase the number of spine surgeon, surgeons, we see greater uh, escalated care. That's not very surprising. No, but interesting yeah. to, uh, yeah. to get the numbers. Right. So uh, on the other hand, if we increase the number of chiropractors by one, we see a, an increase in the number of conservative episodes by 18.7 per thousand. So um, again, this is fairly intuitive that uh, if there are more conservative care providers, we would expect to see more conservative care episodes. Um, but uh, in addition to that, we see a decrease in 3.3 per thousand non-conservative episodes. So same theme here, right, which is that these conservative care practitioners decrease the likelihood of treatment escalation because these, these non-conservative episodes are involving imaging opioids and surgery. So adding one chiropractor increases conservative episodes by about 19, and it decreases non-conservative episodes by about three. Uh, and then we also evaluated primary care doctors. So if we increase the number of primary care doctors by one in this new population, um, then we decrease the number of conservative care episodes by about two and a half per thousand. Hmm. Wow. Well, this gets back to, I guess, our our uh, first article where we were talking about, uh, you know, what what to do with this information. And from your discussion uh, section in this paper, I'm just going to read this and then get your thoughts on it. You say, um, despite the inherent limitations, we believe these results further highlight the need for healthcare policymakers to consider how the composition of the workforce affects care. So. 
maybe we can just have a little bit of a continuation of what we were what we started before and followed up now that we have some more data here. Yes. So, uh, unfortunately, um, many conservative care providers, and and I guess I should uh, speak specifically to chiropractic because that's what I'm most familiar with. Uh, chiropractors um, are choosing to be out of network with Medicare because of the poor reimbursement and because of the limitations on scope of practice. So as it stands currently, our Medicare does not pay chiropractors to conduct an evaluation of their patients, which is standard of care and completely necessary. The only thing that Medicare pays for is spinal manipulation, um, which is uh, a problem, right? Because they're, first of all, their level of reimbursement is, is quite low compared to most of the private insurers. And the fact that they're not allowing reimbursement for standard of care and things that are within our scope of practice um, is, is a reason why many conservative practitioners choose not to participate in Medicare. So what we saw in this study that, that we just went through is that of the conservative care options, chiropractic, PT, OT, NSAIDs, chiropractic was by far the most utilized conservative care intervention. So uh, uh, if the patients were using conservative care, 71% of them were using chiropractic, okay? So in my opinion, um, updating Medicare policies to reflect the benefits that we see in studies like we just discussed uh, in older populations may encourage more conservative care providers to participate in Medicare. And based on on the results we just discussed as well, um, the, the availability of chiropractic plays a huge role in the type of treatment that spine care patients get, um, whether it's conservative or or non-conservative or the likelihood of of progressing to things like spine surgery um, can be avoided if if we have the availability of non, uh, um, excuse me, conservative care providers. Uh, It's the state of um, Medicare policy right now is restricting conservative care providers from participation because of the the limits that they place on scope of practice and reimbursement. So that's my soapbox on, on Medicare. Well, totally. And, and I'll just uh, follow up uh, by just reflecting on some of the current literature we've talked about today, but just bringing in perhaps some others. Uh, these studies that have shown a reduction in in opioid use and, and imaging and, and surgeries. I mean, uh, that's the kind of data, it sounds like the legislators and uh, overarching healthcare system wants and needs. And <laughs> here we are with a, a track record um, being the largest conservative care provider, as you put it. Yes. Uh, it seems like we're right there. What what is the issue? I don't. I yeah. I really don't understand. Um, but uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> and the yeah. other, th- the other thing reflecting on it too, is, um, the way, the way you put it, I think was awesome. You know, you spelled it out with the Medicare and it makes me think, okay, and we still have so many people coming to see us as chiropractors and they're willing to pay out of pocket yes. for their, for their exams, for their adjunctive therapies. Cause as you said, the only thing that's covered is a spinal manipulation or an adjustment. So, you know, it, it does make me reflect on, wow, this is, uh, it's, it's pretty incredible stuff we have here. I just wish the rest of the, uh, the world knew about it. Yeah. Yeah. Patients, Medicare patients want the type of treatment that, that we offer and, and Medicare is not, um, allowing them to receive it, which is really a tragedy. So, yep. Yep. Okay. So last paper, um, entitled Three Patterns of Spinal Manipulative Therapy for Back Pain and Their Association with Imaging Studies, Injection Procedures, and Surgery, a Cohort Study of Insurance Claims. Um, This is published in JMPT. Uh, Again, if you could walk us through and then we can uh, reflect on on the study as well. Sure. So this is another uh, study that was pulled uh, in part from my dissertation. It's using the same data set that was used in the cervical spine study, that first study we, we talked about. Um, so the purpose of this study was, again, to evaluate the relationships between um, procedures, uh, these uh, injections, surgeries, and imaging, and care patterns in back pain episodes. So um, we, we looked at three different care patterns of uh, spinal manipulation. So we looked at patients who initiated care with spinal manipulation, um, who were exposed to spinal manipulation, but later in treatment. So meaning they, they saw other providers first, and then they saw chiropractors later. And then we had a no manipulation comparison group. Um, and then, you know, we, we wanted to look at the associations between which of these types of care patterns the patients were exposed to and how does that influence their exposure to uh, imaging studies, injection procedures, and surgery. So um, we found results that were similar to the first study, right, which is... Um, If we initiate care with uh, uh, spinal manipulation for back pain, we see about uh, a 30% decrease in the risk of imaging studies, injection procedures, and back surgery compared to the control group, which is the no spinal manipulation group. So um, to me, that that wasn't so surprising based on uh, everything we've discussed so far. What was a little bit surprising is the group who delayed uh, spinal manipulation exposure uh, actually increased their risk of um, escalation of care uh, to, you know, a a significant degree. Um, So it it makes you question uh, the, the timing of of exposure to spinal manipulation. And if uh, if we are able to get these patients in, in our offices as the first provider, 
it's very clear from, at least from this study, and there's plenty of other studies that I cite in, in that paper that show that initial conservative care has a significant protective effect against treatment escalation. Um, what has not been very well studied is these patients who seek other care and then uh, end up in the chiropractor's office because the other care was not successful, right? So these are what we might consider to be higher risk patients because they've tried other things that haven't worked. And uh, we, we also have a variable in this data set, uh, which is a risk score variable. And we can look at the risk score across these three different um, care patterns. And we see that the risk score is much higher in these patients in the delayed manipulation group. So they're, what, what that indicates to me is that they, they have higher um, comorbidities. They're more medically complex. Um, and these are the types of patients generally that start treatment in, with a primary care doctor um, because they often are already seeing uh, either, you know, a primary care or another specialist because they have other comorbidities and, you know, they develop back pain and they have a relationship with a primary care doc. So they see them first. So um, there's a, there's a, a substantial literature on uh, evaluating the medical complexity of patients who seek chiropractic care versus uh, medical management, for example. And it's, it's fairly clear that uh, patients who seek chiropractic care, for the most part, are less medically complex. They have um, generally lower number of comorbidities. They have lower average pain levels and they have lower levels of disability and a variety of different um, outcome measures. So we have to account for that when, um, when we're evaluating the comparison, right, between provider types, because we're not necessarily comparing apples to apples here. So the way we evaluate for that is by, um, you know, using these risk scores and other variables in, um, you know, regression models. And, and we, we try to balance them out and we account for them uh, which we can't completely, we, we, we can't do completely. It's, this is not a randomized trial, but um, there are analytical methods to try to account for the, this baseline difference in um, patient characteristics. Yeah, I'm just struck by how all of these papers are so cohesive with each other, just hearing you discuss all of them. Uh, you know, in reading in this particular paper, uh, tables two and three, uh, if, uh, if chiropractors or others really want to dig into it, uh, it's very clear to see that the initial SMT group had significantly reduced risk for all of these escalation issues. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so I, I'm glad you also talked through the group that delayed SMT, because that was my major question of, you know, what's yeah. going on in this group? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, what were some of the other factors? Comorbidities, you know, I think explains that uh, quite nicely, as well as seeing medical providers first. And we've had, you know, much discussion about that uh, already in this yeah. conversation. So, um, 
Fantastic. I, I yeah. think these are just uh, awesome papers. Uh, and uh, before before I let you go, though, I, I do want to – I ask everybody, as you know, uh, Dr. Anderson, about um, if you can um, provide any advice to, to chiropractors or students who – wish ultimately to become scientists and researchers, hopefully within our profession. Um, If you could, if you could offer anything at this point. Yeah. You know, a common theme here that I think I've mentioned a few times is that don't be afraid to reach out to chiropractic researchers who um, are, are doing research that, that you are, uh, drawn to or impressed with or that kind of align with your interests um, because it's a relatively small group of us, right? And uh, we understand the the challenges of getting through, um, you know, a, a PhD program or, or even just the, the process of conducting a research study. And th- those people who are early career um, haven't had a lot of those experiences yet. And uh, it can be overwhelming, right, to to start down this path without having a group of, of mentors that you can go to and get advice from. And that that's really the approach that I took, right? And I remember, um, Dean, that I reached out to you uh, quite a few years ago when I first started my PhD program. And I, Absolutely. I did, yeah, and I did the same thing with uh, five or six other uh, DC PhDs who I really admire and who who are doing great work, and you know it, it might not lead to any anything substantial as far as you know research collaborations, but there's always advice that you can get from people who have been down this path before you. So you know my advice is to reach out, contact other chiropractic researchers who who you admire or who uh, you're interested in knowing more about, uh, form a network of mentors, whether they're officially, you know, chiropractic researchers or not, uh, who can help you kind of navigate this path, right? Um, And this is the approach that I took, and it has paid off in spades, I'm telling you, that the opportunities that I've had, uh, two of the papers that we talked about today, the uh, R15 grant that was successfully funded, all of those things began by uh, a simple email or a phone call, reaching out to someone uh, with a question or, you know, advice or something along those lines. And, you know, a year or two years or or six months down the line, um, these people have opportunities that, you know, they're looking for help with. And, um, you know, you never know what that is going to lead to. So, you know, broaden your your group of mentors as, as to include as many people as possible. And, um, yeah, I think really that's the best advice I can give. Yeah, well, that's great. It, it's excellent. And you know as well as me, I mean, there's, there's just no better feeling uh, than being able to contribute in a meaningful way to the to the profession when it comes to research. Uh, yes. So, yeah. Well, hey, Dr. Anderson, this has been a great uh, discussion that we've had. I wonder if you have any uh, last comments, or did I did I extract everything from you already? 
Boy, I, yeah, I think uh, I think you we covered it. Um, uh, yeah, I just I, I want to again thank you for reaching out to me. I'm uh, I, like I said, I I've always uh, thought that I might at some point end up uh, speaking with you on the podcast, but I, I wasn't sure when that would happen. And, and it's really an honor to talk with you and um, put you know get my my story out there and get more people exposed to the research. So uh, it's a great thing that you're doing here and and keep it up. Well, I thank you for that. And it honestly is, uh, is my pleasure. Uh, I just love to hear about the latest in, in chiropractic research. I mean, we're, we're progressing. There's absolutely no doubt. I mean, you, yeah. you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, I, you know, you'd have to wait a month or two months for a a really significant paper to come out, you know, at least yeah. that's what it seemed. Uh, I'm probably yeah. mischaracterizing that, but uh, you know what I mean? And so now yeah. it's just constant. It's a barrage of, you know, it's, it's super difficult to keep up. Um, but this is one of the best ways that I've found, at least for myself to, to get to the individual researchers, to explore the themes that they've been covering and, and try to get this information out. And I, I, I hope, and I know that many chiropractors have, um, you know, pursued careers in research. And uh, so for that, I'm, I'm very grateful. Uh, and, uh, and I just wish, you know, everybody the, the best success, whether they're in practice or they're considering, uh, again, pursuing a career in research, which I absolutely hope they do, because we need as, as much as we can possibly get uh, yeah. to make these advances, uh, like we talked about today, to, you know, fully be uh, into, into Medicare and uh, to, you know, these sorts of things. Uh, but it, my bottom line, uh, I think like yours, I, I just wish more people uh, took advantage of chiropractic care. Yes. So yeah, it's, it's, I mean, despite it being, you know, likely the most uh, utilized uh, conservative care uh, kind of branch, it's still dramatically underutilized. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, totally. So, yeah. I would, and I just want to, uh, I guess, end by offering myself as a resource I, even though I consider myself still to be early career, um, anyone who is kind of even earlier than myself or or has any questions or, or you know, concerns about any any of the, the grant opportunities or uh, the loan repayment program or, or anything that we talked about today, I want to be a resource for uh, people who are, you know, coming, coming in, in kind of the next generation. So... Um, well, that's, that's great to reach out. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And very kind. Uh, and I, and I have found, as you mentioned that, um, you know, it's a fairly tight knit community that we have. There aren't that many chiropractic researchers. We need more. And, uh, almost everybody that I've reached out to has, you know, is the same, you know, for the most part, everybody wants to, uh, advance this, uh, this agenda of getting more, more research. And so people are eager and, and, uh, I think very, very willing. So please, uh, take advantage of that if, if you're considering this. So again, Dr. Anderson, what a great conversation. I'd love to have you back on, uh, after you get some more 
publications out there, we can uh, sit down again at some point. It'd be awesome. Absolutely, it would be great. I would love to. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Dean.